Chapter Eleven of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Eleven A Picnic and What Came of It. For the next few days I was very busy, acting as a sort of representative for Blake, and queer enough were some of the jobs on which I was engaged. For two whole days I was collecting clocks, out of which Blake and the other skippers constructed some extraordinary infernal machines, destined for several dummy torpedo-boats that Blake had invented and set great store by. The idea was to make the dummies explode if rammed by any craft. These dummies were made in a very simple fashion. A couple of shore-boats, covered all over with tarpaulin, were set some fifty feet apart, and a light tree-trunk lashed fore and aft between them, and to this was attached a framework bearing a rough general resemblance to the hull of a ninety-foot-long torpedo-boat. In the water the thing floated topside down, the boats forming imitation conning-towers, while a little canvas well tarred and stiffened with iron rods and hoops made a very presentable funnel and other deck erections. Some planks amidships made a good resting place for the explosive that was destined to be packed there, if we could get it. And, regarded from a little distance, especially at night, the craft looked very like a small genuine torpedo-boat. We constructed seven of these dummies altogether, stowing them on board the colliers as soon as completed. It was while this task was going on that I happened to get on the sick list. There was nothing particular the matter with me, so said the doctor from the Speedy. A good tramp ashore on the hills would probably put me right, but I felt altogether run down. "'All you subs want is a good run ashore,' he said, "'to keep your livers from getting sluggish.' Blake, hearing of the medico's verdict, fell in with the idea at once. "'I'll send the lot of you, I think. You're only in the way on board ship. You'd better fix up a picnic or something of that sort on the hills.' Hence it came about that, the next day, eight or nine of us, accompanied by a cart loaded with hampers of good things, toiled up the steep winding road, past the golf links, and across the moorland beyond. Here, looking down upon our ships and harbour reduced to the size of cockle-shells, we drank in the pure mountain air, and gazed away over Holy Island to the distant Scotch coast. Here, too, we emptied the cart and picnicked in right royal fashion. It was a glorious relaxation after being cooped up on board ship for so long. It was a pleasure in itself to lie amidst the sweet-smelling heather and golden gorse, and feel that we lived— by and by we split up into smaller parties, some going along the road to Brodick, others remaining where they were, no longer anxious for fresh exertion. Thorne had gone on to Brodick with another sub and an engineer from the Speedy, a very decent sort, and by and by I wished I had gone too. I could still see them, little specks in the distance, when I started to follow." but it was one thing to see them, another to be able to attract their attention and get them to wait while I caught them up. 
Gradually they disappeared, going down the dip of a hill, and I had begun to despair of catching them when I remembered a shortcut through a wood which I had learned some two or three years before when we had been at Lamlash for the manoeuvres. It was contrary to Blake's orders to leave the main road. He had made a chart of the exact course we were to follow, so that, in the event of any ship being sighted from the hill, the cart could come along the road and fetch us back. But the temptation was too strong for my weary legs, and soon I was breast-high in the brake-fern on my way to the little wood. Here the beauty of the scene, tinted with the glories of autumn, was too much for me, and I sat down to rest a while, and dream by the side of a little stream that babbled through the fern-grown rocks, with a soft, lulling murmur, like the music of angels. I sat and mused, and— Presently I must have fallen asleep. "'You've put the wire in cipher, of course?' The voice awoke me with a start, and little wonder, for it was the voice of Mr. Fergus, well known in the city. "'Of course,' replied another voice, Green's, "'and I reckon we ought to make a mighty pile out of this.' "'Yes, if nothing goes wrong. You're sure you've got everything prepared, I hope?' everything. Photos of the fleet as I took them the other day. Positive proof, quite positive. Names of principal officers, and everything enough to convince the most hopeless skeptic. But, bless you, the report alone will send them up like one o'clock. I dared not move as I had at first intended. Chance had made me overhear what seemed to be a deliberate plan to wreck Blake's scheme for the salvation of England, and I was determined to hear the last of it, so as to know how to set to work to circumvent them. "'Well,' continued Green, after a pause, "'what arrangements have you made? Have you seen the girl?' "'Seen her? I've done nothing but see her for the last two days, till I'm sick to death of her. Promises of money didn't seem enough to work the oracle, so I promised to marry her. As well promise an L as an inch, you know.' he added, laughing. "'Yes, well, it's a good thing you picked her up. I'd made sure that that infernal outside broker of a ship's captain had collared every boat in the island. It's pleasant to find that he's not so smart as he reckons himself.' "'He did collar all that were afloat, but he didn't chance to find old Davy's boathouse, thank the fates. Well, the girl ought to be here by this—' "'Tisn't her rule to keep her prospective husband waiting. "'Ah, here she comes!' "'From my hiding-place in the ferns "'I caught a glimpse of a yellow-haired, freckled lass "'hastening down the path I had recently come by. "'Well, my dear,' said Fergus, "'here you are. "'You know my friend Mr. Green, so don't mind him. "'Now you must give this to old Davy yourself, mind, "'and tell no one.' not tell a soul. It's for some nice dresses and pretty things for you to be married in, so if it doesn't go over at once, without the ships in harbour knowing of it, mind, for they'd try and steal it, if it doesn't go over to-night, we shan't be able to be married at all, and I shall go away and never see you again. And you mustn't let even old Davy know who it's from. Now give me a kiss, my dear, and hurry off." The girl promised readily enough, gave the desired salute, 
and went along the path in the direction of Braddock. "'I guess we'd better be moving on, too,' said Green. "'Poor little girl,' he added, with a momentary twinge of remorse. "'Seems a pity to deceive her so, too, but—' "'Can't be helped,' said the other, shortly. "'If our gallant pirate in the harbour catches old Davy—as there is a risk, of course—well, he'll never associate us with the affair.' "'Huh! I'm not so sure of that. However, if it does fall through, we've still another chance, whereas, going ourselves, we should risk everything in one deal.' I had scarcely patience to wait until they were out of earshot. Then I jumped up and ran as hard as I could towards Braddock, catching sight of the girl before she had reached the village. As I ran, I had had dim visions of snatching the telegram out of her hand, but a little thought convinced me that she would ere this have secreted it about her person, so any attempt to obtain possession of it by force would have its awkward side." fortune favoured me again as it chanced ere the girl had reached the village and while i was yet hesitating as to what course to pursue a young fisherman sprang out of the hedge and confronted her the girl screamed and hid her face in her hands while i feeling that i was doomed to go through life playing the eavesdropper hastily got inside a field give me that letter angrily cried the man in the Scotch dialect that I shall not attempt to reproduce here. "'I've got no letter. Let me pass,' she answered. "'That's a lie, a wicked, sinful lie, for which you will go to hell and burn. I saw him give it to you myself. There!' he retorted in a passion of jealous rage. The girl's hand involuntarily went to her bosom and in a moment his rough fingers had torn open her dress and seized the faithful telegram. Thrusting the weeping girl from him, he held it aloft and laughed. "'So,' he shouted, "'you would be having letters from your new sweetheart, and forget all about your old one!' He tore the missive into fragments, turned on his heel, and ran away down the hill, leaving the girl crying bitterly by the roadside." Overjoyed at the turn of events, I hastened on to Broddick. I felt sorry for the girl, and sorry too for her native lover, and, impelled by some inner force, felt it my duty to try and mend matters. I stopped as I reached her, and sought to explain that she was being made a fool of. But, womanlike, she would have none of it, and finally giving it up as a bad job, I went on my way. In the village, just outside the hotel, I met the fisherman. He, at least, could be made useful to us. Briefly as possible, I sought to explain to him how the land lay, and though the projected money transactions were beyond him, he understood enough to know that treachery was afoot. Finally, I impressed upon him the advisability of watching Green and Fergus, telling him that if he only let Captain Blake know where to lay hands on them, they would trouble him and his no more. This done, and feeling that I had secured a valuable ally, I went on into the hotel, where Thorne and the others still were. Telling them of what I had overheard, we hurriedly retraced our steps, and reaching the cart an hour later, galloped down the hill towards the harbour for all we were worth. Reaching the Ratto, I told Blake of my adventure. He was thunderstruck at the news, 
but cast about at once for means how to act. It never occurred to you, I suppose, to find out who was old Davy and where he lived? No, I answered, startled. Upon my word, I was fool enough never to think of it. Still, Brodick, I suppose. If it is Brodick, we may be in time, otherwise we may be too late. He hastily gave orders for the Ratto to weigh at once, signalling his news and intentions to the other captains, and in a very short time we were steaming out of the northern entrance and round to Brodick as hard as we could pelt. You see, explained Blake, they have heard all about it from the girl ere this, and, for aught I know, they will have started themselves, knowing what any further delay might probably mean. At Brodick we got as close in shore as possible. Then, our boat being lowered, Blake was rowed towards the land. As the boat was speeding thither, a man hailed us repeatedly from the pier. "'Tisn't here!' he cried to Blake. "'They've gone in old Davy's launch some time ago.' "'Which way?' "'I don't know, sir, which way, but they went some two or three hours since.' "'Back as hard as you can row,' I heard Blake order and I got ready to be off the moment he should come on board. "'Here's a pretty kettle of fish,' he muttered as we raced out of the bay at a good twenty-five knots. "'I'd to think that if you hadn't disobeyed orders, we'd never have known of it at all. Well, as tis, all our plans are as good as wrecked, unless we catch these fellows. It serves me right, too. I should have been more careful, and left nothing to chance.' It was now dark, but the moon lit up a fair expanse of water, so that a boat would be visible at some distance. Lookouts crowded the ship. We had to look for hostile vessels as well as for our special quarry. Neither off Glasgow nor Ardresson could we come across anything like old Davy's boat, so we tried working more to the northward, though hope was getting faint. "'Small boat on the starboard bow,' reported a lookout man and we nearly shouted with joy as our eyes fell on a small sailing-boat close inshore some three miles ahead. In another five minutes we were right upon her, so fast were we steaming, but even that five minutes made us nearly too late. While we were yet a hundred yards away, not daring to approach nearer for fear of grounding, the boat ran upon the beach, and the two stockbrokers sprang out of her. "'Give me a rifle!' ordered Blake sharply. Smart! In an instant a loaded rifle was in his hands. Stop, you hounds! he cried to Green and Fergus. Between them and the comparative safety of a little wood there was some fifty feet of moonlit beach, a beach with rocks here and there, behind which a man might find plenty of cover. My God! cried Green. Would you murder us in cold blood? If you move, I shoot, Blake replied. Go back to your boat at once if you wish to save your lives. This, however, they either could not or would not do. Take the gig and fetch them, Bovary. Blake called to me. I hastened to obey, and soon the boat ran upon the beach alongside the other, and followed by the men I ran towards the stockbrokers. They were quite close to me now, and I could see the perspiration streaming down their faces as they watched our approach. Then, as we drew yet nearer, Fergus said to his companion, "'It's now or never. Cut!' And with the same they started to run like hares for the wood. "'After them!' 
I cried, but at the same instant I heard the report of a rifle, and Fergus, with a shriek, sprang into the air to fall back dead. Green fell too, not hit, but grovelling in terror. "'Heaven have mercy!' he moaned. "'They're murdering us, murdering us! And it would have been a million pounds, a million pounds!' We soon secured the frightened wretch, and with no very gentle hands dragged him back to the whaler. "'Tow off the other boat,' hailed Blake, "'and sharp as you can.' The two men in the boat, one of whom we presumed was old Davy, sat there quite still and motionless, dumbfounded at the turn of events. Doubtless they expected to be shot like Fergus, but they were too terrified to make any attempt at escape. Green, lying bound in the bottom of the whaler, kept up his incessant wail. "'Murdered for a million pounds! A million pounds!' Nor could my angry orders quiet him. "'What are you going to do with him now, sir?' I asked Blake, when we had got on board again, scuttling old Davy's boat as soon as we were in deeper water. "'I don't know. Hanging's about the handiest thing.' replied the skipper grimly. It's about the best thing we can do for the country, too. It seems very horrible, sir. Well, I'm not going to do it now, anyway. He shall be tried properly first. We've got to see to getting back next. As for old Davy, that silly old fool won't trouble us again. Send him forward with the other fishermen. Old Davy went forward, and a miserable time he had of it at the hands of the Blue Jackets, who related to him horrible deaths by torture which he would shortly undergo. Green, still secured, was left on deck, keeping up his incessant moaning over the lost million, but we had other things to see to than bother about him just then. End of chapter.